0: Paul gave my talk that uh, intellectual-sounding title. Mine was much more pedestrian uh, when we first first talked about this. But uh, uh, what I'm going to talk about is, uh, uh, I'm going to start off talking about an essay written by the late Mel Bradford. And uh, the essay was entitled, Lincoln, the Declaration and Secular Puritanism, and then colon, A Rhetoric for Continuing Revolution. And uh, the argument that Mel Bradford made—he was a—he was a literary scholar, and uh, a friend of David Gordon's, among other words—and uh, David has always had very high regard for Mel Bradford as he was one of his intellectual heroes. So this was a very learned man. And so uh, what he's talking about is uh, that uh, that uh, the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, in which he tried to rewrite the Declaration of Independence or the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, became the ideological genesis of American military and foreign policy that has prevailed basically since 1863. Since he made this uh, sort of this Gettysburg Address. In fact, Gary Will's the the left wing uh, uh, pundit wrote a whole book on the Gettysburg Address on what a what a clever subterfuge it was and and how it it has been used to uh, subvert the Constitution, which Gary Will's thinks is a good thing. And so, uh, anyway, that's sort of an advertisement for this. And anyway, especially the all men are created equal line from the Declaration has been uh, twisted and perverted to mean something different, I think, than what uh, Thomas Jefferson would ever have intended it to mean, the author of the Declaration of Independence. And there's a whole industry uh, of sorts that has been devoted to to maintaining this this, uh, uh, distorted meaning of the Declaration, and uh, it 's the whole the, the West Coast Straussians led by Harry Jaffa, their whole reason for existing uh, I think is is to keep this up uh, every every time we get to the Fourth of July there's an article in The Wall Street Journal or someplace like that about the real meaning of the Declaration of Independence, as though Americans are too ignorant to read the document on their own and see what it says. And so they keep reminding us of the real meaning. And what was, what is what is meant by the real meaning of this, this this rhetoric of continuing revolution? Uh, well, uh, the all men are created equal line means that uh, it's the duty of Americans. Has, this is what it's been turned into. It's the duty of Americans to stamp out all sin in the world, wherever it may be found, so that all men everywhere could share an equal freedom. Everywhere, whether you're in uh, New Mexico, Alabama, or Iraq, anywhere. Uh, so that's why the Battle Hymn of the Republic, for example, which referred to the death of, you know, the latest estimate of Civil War deaths is, is as many as eight hundred and fifty thousand. For a hundred years, six hundred twenty thousand was a number, but it's been upgraded to as many as eight hundred and fifty thousand. And you can uh, search it on the web, and you can find this latest research. But this was referred to as. In the battle hymn of the republic, uh, as the glory of the coming of the Lord, and uh, it's this sort of thing that went a long way towards cementing in place this new vision of the role of America in uh, in foreign policy and being uh, ruler of the world. Uh, prior to prior to this, <clears throat> Murray Rothbard wrote in one of his essays uh, about this just this topic, and his essay entitled "Just War." Uh, He he points out the obvious fact that before this, uh, American foreign policy was pretty much guided by the Washington-Jefferson philosophy of commercial relationships with all nations entangling alliances with none. Uh, And Murray Rothbard wrote uh, wrote this. He said, in those days, neutrality was considered not only justifiable, but a positive virtue. Imagine that. Keeping our noses out of somebody's business. Who ever heard of such a thing? Uh, In the old days... Quote, he kept us out of war, was a great tribute to any political leader. Could you ever imagine Sean Hannity, or, or, or uh, saying something like this, or or Mark Levin, uh, uh, and so and quote standing idly by while other nations warred with each other was a mark of high statesmanship. That was the old days. That was the old days. And he correctly pointed out, also Rothbard did that interventionists. Uh, military interventionists were more correctly considered as propagandists for despotism, mass murder, and perpetual, perpetual war, if not spokesmen for special interest groups or agents of the merchants of death. And, uh, and then Murray says, this is scarcely a high ground <laughs> to, to talk about that. Uh, but today this is all different, you know, armed with uh, this uh, Lincolnian ideology, uh, his re- restating of the Declaration of Independence and and the re restating of it by his political heirs, uh, we've we've gone into uh, you know the era of perpetual war for perpetual peace, where where we are obligated to take up this is Murray Rothbard again, where we are obligated to take up the sword and wage a perpetual war to force utopia on the entire world by guns, tanks, and bombs. That's that's Murray Rothbard. That's gone a long way from the Jeffersonian. Washingtonian uh, entangling alliances with none. Uh, Isabel Patterson called it humanitarians with a guillotine. Uh, and uh, she, the humanitarian, in theory, is the terrorist in action, she wrote. Uh, which brings us to the latest rendition of this uh, terrorist in action uh, lingo. And it happens, I'll one example of it uh, is... Uh, uh, King Obama, I mean President Obama's uh, uh, speech recently before the United Nations on September 25th. Uh, this was uh, this was after the American uh, CIA chief in ben, in Benghazi was murdered. You've all, you've all read about that. They don't call him the CIA chief; they call him I don't know, liaison uh, to Libya, I think. But. Uh, but Obama, his name was Stevens, uh, in uh, Chris Stevens. And uh, Obama praised Stevens in his speech for having gone to Libya as his representative and having, quote, crafted a vision for a future for Libyans. So think about that. American president sends some guy to Libya to craft their future for them. <laughs> and then uh, in the same speech, Obama then goes on to boast of all the recent military aggressions by America. Uh, in the name of humanitarianism, of course, uh, included Iraq, Afghanistan, Egypt, Yemen, and Libya. And while threatening future wars with Syria and Iran, uh, he said this quote, We again declare that the regime of Bashar al Assad must come to an end. That was President Obama talking to the United Nations. Uh, and so uh, then came the justification for this. After threatening, after praising, himself and his predecessor for all these wars and threatening two more wars, then came the justification for these two more wars that he hopes to get into. This is President Obama again. We have taken these positions because we believe that freedom and self-determination are not unique to one culture. These are not simply American values or Western values. They are universal values. And even as there will be huge challenges that come with a transition to democracy, I am convinced that ultimately government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Have you heard that before somewhere? Is more likely to bring about the stability, prosperity, and individual opportunity that serve as a basis for peace in our world. Mel Bradford could not have written that better if he would have written up sort of a a, a plagiaristic, you know, you know, imaginary. Speech to bolster his point about the perversion of the Declaration of Independence, the "all men are created equal" line in the Declaration of Independence, to justify terrorism and mass murder in the name of humanitarian, humanitarianism. Uh, he then uh, Obama then promised even more perpetual war for more perpetual peace by saying this quote. America will never retreat from the world. No government or company, no school or NGO will be confident working in any country where its people are endangered. Our citizens must be secure and our efforts must be welcomed. So, any country, anywhere, where Americans might step foot for a minute is fair game for our bombs is how I interpret that uh, uh, to, to, to mean. And again, don't forget he he literally quoted Abe Lincoln uh, of the people by the people and, and so forth. Uh, and, so, and, and Lincoln himself, by the way, plagiarized that from Daniel Webster, uh, so just as a, as a footnote. It was that even that wasn't original uh, with him. And he made another speech saying something very similar. The, his second inaugural address, he touched on, uh, you know, this, this whole idea has come to be called American exceptionalism. That's what, that's what the neocons, of course, like to, to, to call this. And here's what uh, President Obama said in his second inaugural address. What makes us exceptional, what makes us American, is our allegiance to an idea articulated in a declaration made more than two centuries ago. So he's, he's just proving Mel Bradford's point. And he says, today we continue a never-ending journey to bridge the meaning of those words in the Declaration with the realities of our time. And then he goes on to say, through blood drawn by lash and blood drawn by sword, we learned that no union founded on the principles of liberty and equality could survive half slave and half free. So there he is comparing himself to Abe Lincoln again and, and invoking the same rhetoric, the rhetoric of continuing revolution you know you know what what more do you, do you need to be convinced that this is certainly is uh, the rhetoric of continuing uh, revolution and moving along in the same address the second inaugural address obama says we will support democracy from asia to africa from the americas to the middle east because our interests and our conscience compel us to act on behalf of those who long for freedom uh, that's why i suppose there's a popular bumper sticker sticker uh, that I've seen that says, You'd better behave or we will impose democracy on your country. <laughs> maybe they should sell it uh, downstairs. <laughs> but this is, this is almost like a Monty Python skit. This is this, this speech, the second inaugural address of Barack Obama. Um, uh, Mel Bradford was not the first to recognize how this game has been played for a long, long time. Another man who uh, who recognized this was Robert Penn Warren, the novelist, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Robert Penn Warren. In 1961, he, Time Magazine asked him to write a book on the legacy of the Civil War. It was the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the American Civil War. So he wrote this little book called The Legacy of the Civil War. Uh, and um, and so and he touched on the same theme that Mel Bradford wrote about in, in quite a few places, not just that one article that I mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of this talk. And uh, here's here's one of the things that uh, Robert Penn Warren said. Uh, he said a major theme of his book, The Legacy of the Civil War. It's a little green book. Still, it's still in print. Uh, you could buy it for a, about a dollar, I think. Uh, he says, "Well, it left the North, which is to say, the government, because the Republican Party monopolized the the federal government, basically until Woodrow Wilson became president in 1913. You had the Grover Cleveland years, uh, but the Republican, uh, the Democrats were not totally successful even then during the Grover Cleveland administrations. But even, but that whole period from 1865 to 1912 was was almost entirely dominated by the Republican Party, uh, which was the party of the North, of course." He says, a war left with the North with a treasury of virtue. The Northerner with his treasury of virtue feels redeemed by history. He has in his pocket not a papal indulgence peddled by some wandering pardoner of the Middle Ages, but an indulgence, a plenary indulgence for all sins, past, present, and future. So whatever we have done or will do is, is moral by virtue of the fact that it is we who are doing it. That's the idea. That's American exceptionalism. He, uh, he referred to this as a, a moral narcissism, but he said it is a poor basis for national policy, but nevertheless, it is the justification for our crusades of 1917 to 1918 and 1941 to 1945 and our diplomacy of righteousness with the slogan of unconditional surrender and universal spiritual rehabilitation for others. Not for us, for others, so that, that's the goal of American foreign policy, the spiritual rehabilitation of other people everywhere, as Obama says. People everywhere. The whole planet. You know, Murray Rothbard used to joke that, uh, he used to say, uh, you know, why doesn't the U.S. government just bomb all the other countries at once and get it all over with? And then, and then, <laughs> then leave us alone. And it, it seems as though they're doing that. That's, that's what they're trying to do. And so, uh, Robert Penn Warren goes on to say that, you know, to be the most virtuous humans ever to inhabit the planet requires um, forgetting many facts, many facts. <laughs> and so, and so, he, well, so what he's saying is that, you know, the Lincoln regime started this. And, you know, to this day, we have all the presidents, Bush, Obama, always qu- uh, quoting Abe Lincoln and his words to justify this. But we have to forget history in order to go along with this game. We have to forget real history. Here's what Robert Penn Warren says we need to forget uh, about, uh, uh, about this idea that we are the most virtuous people on earth. It is forgotten that the Republican platform of 1860 pledged protection to the institution of slavery where it existed, and that the Republicans were ready in 1861 to guarantee slavery in the South as bait for a return to the Union. It is forgotten that in July 1861, both houses of Congress, by an almost unanimous vote, affirmed that the war was waged not to interfere with the institutions of any state, but only to maintain the Union. It is uh, uh, forgotten that the Emancipation Proclamation was limited and provisional. Slavery was to be abolished only in the seceded states and only if they did not return to the Union before the 1st of the next January. It must also be forgotten that most northern states refused to adopt Negro suffrage uh, and and that Lincoln was a white supremacist as a man of his time. He goes on to say, uh, The war appears according to this doctrine of the treasury of virtue, as a consciously undertaken crusade, so full of righteousness that there is enough overplus stored in heaven, like the deeds of the saints, to take care of all small failings and oversights of the descendants of the crusaders, certainly into the present generation. So, so much virtue has been built up. But we have to forget all this, this real history. He says, In the generation to come, uh, that region, he's talking about the North, uh, would no longer, after the war, after the Civil War, would no longer furnish the nation with teachers and men of letters, but with a mongrel breed of politicians obsessed with profiteering through their political connections. He's talking about New England politicians. Uh, uh, and if you want to read more about this, I recommend an essay called The Yankee Problem in America by Clyde Wilson, where he uh, he points out that not all Northerners in the, in that period of history were Yankees. He says a Yankee is a particular type of person, and he, uh, Clyde Wilson said that uh, Hillary Clinton would be a mu- museum-quality specimen of a Yankee. And so, <laughs> and so, and of course, thank God not all Northerners from the northern states are like, uh, you know, like Hillary Clinton. And so, uh, continuing on a little bit with Robert Penn Warren. Uh, he believes that most Americans are content with all of these lies about their own history. He calls them the results of the manipulations of propaganda specialists and their sometimes unhistorical history. Uh, Harry Jaffa, call your office. And uh, uh, I would say, and so uh, so Robert Penn Warren uh, and uh, Mel Bradford were both certainly uh, uh, attuned to uh, to what to the link between this idea, this this rewriting of the Declaration of Independence. And the repetition of this idea and its its construction of this notion of American exceptionalism all through all these years, and how it has always served it always comes back to serve as the rationale for uh, for military aggression, which always has some sort of hidden economic agenda uh, behind it uh, to be sure and uh, as uh, as, uh, as uh, Randolph Bourne wrote in his famous essay, "Wars the Health of the State," all wars are pretty much created by a couple of dozen people. Who get together in a room and they call themselves statesmen, and they and they negotiate and they stir up trouble and they start a war. And then uh, after once the war is started, it's pretty easy to get the bourgeoisie in line to support the war because it's it becomes their war, even if they have no idea why the war is being fought. Because after all, it was created by this few dozen people in a room, you know, the statesmen uh, of the world. And so uh, and so he was attuned to that also. And I think that that 's the point I wanted to make for now. My time uh, is almost up, and I just wanted to link the uh, the, uh, the rhetoric of continuing revolution to uh, to modern day events and so uh, you know be on, be aware of this, be on the lookout for this uh, the next time we, uh, the American military bombs some forlorn country out of the blue uh, I, I guarantee you. Uh, We'll have our politicians comparing themselves to Abe Lincoln within 24 hours, and and at that point we're all supposed to say, "Oh, okay, good good job," you know, USA, USA. Start chanting USA uh, when, when you hear that. And my time is up.